church come up so we can pray for you and then dismiss you. It might only be Jaden. Jaden, you get everybody's prayer. That's special. All right. Would you join me in prayer, friends? Father, we thank you so much for um, how you not only have saved us and not only call us to know you, but you give to us your word, which is the means by which uh, who you are and what you've done for us is revealed. And so from young to old, we're all in need of this revelation. We're in need of your voice speaking to us. And so I pray that you be uh, with the children of the church as they continually learn and grow in your word, but also be with us. For even as adults, we continue, Lord, uh, having moved on from milk, eating solid food, and digesting your word, and being encouraged and blessed by it. So, Lord, now at this time, we pray that your word would be taught and spoken clearly, that it would be understood, and not only understood, but applied, obeyed, and lived out faithfully, all into your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Uh, friends, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue in our series looking at the power of uh, the shaping power of gospel hope. And today we're focus- focusing specifically on the topic of how does gospel hope relate to our suffering. Now before we read the passage, just a comment on suffering. You know, suffering in the Christian life is not something that uh, God tries to move past quickly. It's not something that he hopes we don't uh, ask questions about. In fact, Christianity, more than any other religion or philosophy, deals honestly with the issue of suffering in this world. It deals head-on with it. You know, Christianity isn't shy to say that our God himself is actually familiar with suffering because he is a God who has known suffering himself. The Christian hope is that God has allowed himself to suffer in our place so that he could ultimately put an end to our own suffering. And so he is a God familiar with suffering. You know, I love what the psalmist uh, David writes in Psalm 56, verse 8, when he says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? That the Lord knows our tossings and he captures our tears. This is the kind of God we have. He knows our tears. He's a God who knows our fears. And he's a God who encourages us in his word. And so today we're looking at one of these encouragements from 1 Peter chapter 1. So would you stand with me as we give God's word our full attention from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. Please hear now the reading of God's holy word. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. 
In the second Lord of the Rings movie, The Two Towers, uh, Frodo Baggins and his companion, Samwise Gamgee, embark on a difficult journey. And if you're familiar with the plot of that trilogy, they are taking the ring to Mount Doom to destroy it once and for all. But along that journey, they are met with so many obstacles and struggles along the way. And in the Two Towers of the movie, there's this scene where when they have just uh, undergone an attack and they are in a city full of ruins and, and clearly this journey is just too much, it's too hard, it's too difficult. And Frodo, who has the ring, feels the responsibility of, of dropping it in Mount Dor- um, uh, Doom to destroy it. He is so defeated, he is so lifeless, and he looks at Sam and he says this, I can't do this, Sam. I can't do this. I can't go on. I've lost the hope. This is too much for me. And Samwise gives a very powerful and beautiful response to his weary and hopeless companion. This is what he says. I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. And in this part of the movie, Frodo looks at his dear friend and asks, what are we holding on to, Sam? What are we holding on to? So I'd like to start this afternoon by asking that question. What are you holding on to? When life feels desperate and difficult and circumstances and the future are just so uncertain, what are you holding on to? In fact, what is worth holding on to? What gives you the strength to endure the troubles and the worries and the fears and sufferings of today and tomorrow? See, because everybody, every person deals with trials in their lives. Everyone deals with pain and turmoil. The question is, what are you holding on to? What will get you through this life when all you want to say is, I can't do this anymore? Now, Peter's answer to us is gospel hope. And he wants this answer not just to be something theoretical, some theological nugget of truth, but he wants it to be your answer. And so today, we're focusing on this gospel truth as we look at 1 Peter. It's very simple. There is no such thing as hopeless suffering in the believer's life. You have to know this. If you are a believer, there is no such thing as hopeless suffering that you are going through. And so as we look at this passage, as we digest God's word today, I want to look at it under three headings for us. The nature of suffering, the purpose of suffering, and the joy in suffering. So we're going to walk through those three things. And so first, let's consider this, the nature of suffering. 
Read with me verse 6. And we have to be careful how we read this because where we pause actually makes a world of a difference. Let me explain this really quickly. Last week we covered 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Today we're covering 6 to 9. But in the Greek, verses 3 to 9 is actually just one sentence. And so what the translators have done to sort of help us understand it is they have inserted, you know, commas and periods for us to make sense of it, but it can actually get a little confusing. So look at verse 6 with me. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, it depends. It matters where you pause. Are you reading, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while? If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Or are you reading it in this way? In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You see, where you pause tells you where the emphasis of though now for a little while is. The emphasis of though now for a little little while is not in your rejoicing, but in the various trials you are suffering. You see, that's the very first point of the nature of suffering. I'm going to tell you three things about the nature of suffering. The first is this. The trials are for a little while. Peter is writing to his audience. Um, They are elect exiles. They are far from home. They are suffering persecution. They're being ostracized. They're being targeted for their faith. And so Paul encourages them with the nature of suffering, saying, you have to know this about suffering. And your trials, they are for a little while. Now, Paul is saying that what you're going through is not something permanent. It's not forever. He says it's for a little while. But think about this. Why would Paul say this? Or Peter say this, excuse me. Is he promising that whatever suffering you're going through will quickly be over? Is he saying that the pain you feel in life is temporary and it's brief and so just suck it up? Is that what he's saying? I don't think so at all. Because, listen, anyone who's experienced any kind of suffering knows that this is not a promise he can make. You know, some people are marked with suffering from the day they are born. That they are born with certain disabilities, certain health issues. So from the moment they're born, their lives are marked with suffering. Others of us, we live our lives in that some moment in our life, suffering comes our way, and we have to carry it for the rest of our lives. And maybe if you're lucky enough, you entered a season of suffering. Things were very difficult. You entered trials. And you've left that season. But the scars of suffering, the memories of suffering, the heartaches of suffering, they last a lifetime. You may have escaped the season of suffering, but you still carry the suffering with you. For example, this past week was September 11th. And as we remembered all the many lives lost in the attacks of September 11th, that season of suffering has passed. It's been 17 years past. And yet the people who suffered the loss of loved ones, they still bear bear that suffering with them to this very day. Yeah, that that season of suffering has passed, but the suffering is ever-present. So Peter's not naively saying, oh, trials, they're brief. Oh, they won't last long in your life. In fact, for some people, suffering is all that you know in your life. But what Peter is saying is this. When your suffering is compared against the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ, 
then your suffering is a passing second. That's Peter's point. A life of suffering compared to the eternal weight of glory to come shows that that suffering is just for a little while. You see, if you have a living hope in a living Savior, that means your perspective on suffering must change. What are afflictions compared to the eternal inheritance and salvation you have waiting for you in heaven? It's sort of like this. When you're walking through the city, if you're walking through Philadelphia, the buildings are massive. There are these skyscrapers. And it can hurt your neck to walk and look at all of them. And so these skyscrapers, they loom over you. In fact, if you stand under where the entrance of a building and you look up, sometimes it's so tall that you can't even see the end, the top of the building. And sufferings in life are like that. You can't see the end of them. They loom over you. Sometimes suffering is like skyscrapers and they block the sun, the warmth of the sunlight, and all you ever know are these large, looming trials. But if you've ever flown on an airplane into Philadelphia and you fly over the city, those same skyscrapers that seem so big and seem so tall, how do they look from on top of a plane? Small, tiny, those same gargantuan buildings that once seemed so big are now so small from where you sit. Peter is saying that if you have the hope of the gospel in you, there is suffering in your life. He's not saying it's brief, it's temporary, it's going to be over quickly in your life, but he's saying compared to the scope of eternity, your suffering is just for a little while. You see, from where you'll sit in heaven one day, what once seemed like forever, a lifetime of suffering, will go by as a passing moment in the blink of an eye. So trials are for a little while, but secondly, Peter tells us trials are sovereignly necessary. You see, Peter says here, so that, excuse me, verse six, in this you rejoice, so now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. What he means here is that if you're grieved by trials, it's because God has deemed it necessary. Now, Peter assumes a massive theological doctrine in those two words, if necessary. And he is accepting, he's applying the belief that God is sovereign, and therefore whatever comes your way, be it blessing or be it suffering, it does not come to your door accidentally, but it comes by God's governing plan and purpose. That whatever suffering comes your way, it didn't accidentally end up at your doorstep. Now, you may be thinking, whoa, then if God is sovereign and I'm going through suffering, that seems like he is an awful God. That he is a mean, terrifying, vengeful, punishing God. Why would he allow such a thing? Well, before you get to verses 6 to 9, we have to revisit verses 3 to 5. Here's why. What did verse 3 to 5 say? Verse 3 to 5 said that you have a God who, according to great mercy, has raised his son from the dead so that you can have a living hope. It says that this God is keeping for you in heaven an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Peter is saying the God who allows suffering who thinks it's necessary, deems it necessary that suffering comes to your door, is not an angry, malicious, vengeful God who doesn't care about you, but he is the God who has saved you, 
is keeping you for an inheritance, is protecting you. It is a loving God who allows suffering to come into our lives. And here's the comfort we need to draw. The God who deemed it necessary for you to suffer is also the God who deemed it necessary that he suffer for you. Because this God took on suffering in the cruelest form for us. Can we trust him? You see, if you go back to verse 2, Peter had written, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter had just said that God foreknew those he was going to save by the death of his son and the sprinkling of his blood. That he does this because he wants to give you a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter's basically saying this. God allowed his son to suffer death so that you could have life and a living hope eternally. That's how much he loves for you and that's how much he cares for you. And if God loves and cares for you that much, why would he ever let trials hurt you? Why? There is no need to fret or to worry or to question his goodness because he himself suffered for your good, which means that if he himself suffered for your good, he'll let your sufferings be for your good. You know, John Newton once said, everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Think about that. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Friends, do you really believe this about God? That whatever he sends your way is necessary, even the trials that you have to endure. And the third thing we learn about the nature of suffering is that they are of various kinds. Peter lastly says that these trials are various. They are of many kinds. That sufferings come our ways in various shapes and sizes. Suffering comes our ways in various intensities and for various durations. Meaning this, that when we suffer, we stand in a company of sufferers. It's a large company that we stand in. You, You never suffer alone. Because in a fallen world, it is all marked with sin and suffering. None of us can escape it. We just experience it in various kinds. It's so easy, isn't it, to, when you suffer, to throw a pity party, to look at yourself and say, why is this only happening to me? Why is, this, why is my life so bad? And you look at other people and you say, how come they're not suffering? Why do they have it so easy? But before you jump there, realize suffering comes in various forms. You know, so for example, some sufferings comes from outside of us, some come from inside of us. Sufferings that come from outside. Have you ever been wronged by another person? Have you ever been lied to or backstabbed and betrayed by a person, cursed at, abandoned by somebody? These aren't things you can control. This is suffering that comes from outside of ourselves. But some of us experience suffering that comes from within. Suffering through doubt 
and irrational fear, suffering through anxieties and worries and depression and body image issues and mania and postpartum depression and post-traumatic stress disorder and a host of other things. Some of us suffer from things that originate from within. So we have sufferings from outside, sufferings from inside. Some of our sufferings and our trials are brought about because they're the consequence of our own actions. There are those kinds of sufferings, aren't there? If you're ruthless, if you're cruel, you're rude to other coworkers. And then there comes a time when you are under fire and you look around and everyone is scattered. You're isolated, you're alone, you're marginalized. There's no one there to defend you and you're suffering. Well, that was brought about by the consequences of your actions. Or you fall into a moral failure, a moral lapse, and then guilt is eating you and shame is eating you and you're suffering under that. Well, is that not a suffering brought about as a consequence of your sin? But then there's also times that we suffer because we are the victims of other people's negligence and sins. If you're in an auto accident because you're hit by a drunk driver and you're living your life in chronic pain, that's a suffering caused as a result of someone else's sin. If you're targeted by another person's harassment in the classroom or in the office, if you're discriminated against because of your appearance or beliefs, you're the target of racism simply as you're walking down the street or in a store. Sufferings that come as a result of other people's sins. And then there's this fifth category. Trials that come in this world, suffering that comes simply because we live in a broken world. Disease visits you or your family and it announces itself in the least expected times of your life. Disabilities that we're born with or that are developed and the suffering that causes both that person and their caretakers and the stress that it puts in the responsibilities of all that they have to do. The sufferings of death that come as unwelcome guests that move into our neighborhood and slowly visits each one of our loved ones. See, we are grieved by various kinds of trials. All of us are marked in suffering by suffering in some kind of way because we live in a complicated and complex world. We live in a world where sin is present, where Satan is present, and therefore suffering is present. But do you know this? God paints the portrait of your life using many different colors. Some of those colors are light and bright, and some of those colors are dark. The various trials we endure are like the different hues and the different tones that God uses to paint the story that he is working out for you. And though for us, we may feel like our lives are that part of this portrait that is the, the dark sky or deep in the valleys or deep in the well, when we zoom out and we look at the portrait that God is painting for us, it is one of glorious redemption. Yes, he uses various sufferings and trials. He deems it necessary in his 
goodness and sovereign providence, but it is for a little while. So Christian, saint, be encouraged. The nature of our suffering. Well, second, let's consider the purpose of suffering. Paul tells us the purpose in verse 7. He says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our sufferings and our trials are one way that God prepares us for what he wants to give us. He's preparing you to receive something great. Now, it's hard for us to understand that, but think of it this way. Imagine uh, you're a high schooler, right? Your parents uh, tell you, okay, every Saturday morning for nine months, you're waking up at 6 a.m. to go to driving school, and it's the summertime. Now, that's incredible suffering. You just want to sleep in. It's the weekend. I don't want to get up. But imagine that your parents said to you, I want you to take these classes every morning, 6 a.m., because when you get your license on your birthday, I'm going to buy you a brand new sports car. A Porsche. (laughs) All of a sudden, is that suffering? Or would you not consider that suffering of having to wake up on Saturdays at 6 a.m. as now part of the gift? Peter's saying the trials are going to come your way so that the purpose, by testing your faith, is going to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, friends, is not the praise and glory and honor of Jesus. It's your praise and glory and honor. In 1 Peter chapter 5, I believe verse 4, Peter's going to say to the elders that when the chief shepherd appears, you're going to receive a crown of glory. So I know it seems a bit odd for us to think, wow, we're going to be praised. Isn't only God praised? We're going to be honored. Isn't only God honored? We're going to receive glory. Isn't that only? No, no, no. If you are a co-heir with Christ, you share all that the Father delights to give to his Son. So as the Son is revealed on the last day to receive praise, honor, and glory, you too will be lifted to receive praise, honor, and glory on the last day. And so Peter is saying this. He's saying sufferings are going to come your way in order to prepare you so that when you stand before the Father, when Jesus comes back, you will receive praise, honor, and glory. Now let's try to understand what Peter's logic is here. Peter uses an illustration, and he basically says um, that our faith is like gold. Now gold at the time, I mean, still considered precious today, but, but gold was considered the most precious metal in his day, and in order to test it, you would put it through fire, a refiner's fire, and all the impurities that were mixed in with the gold would dissolve away so that what was left is pure gold a purified gold that was the most valuable treasure. And Peter compares that to your faith. He's saying what God is doing in your life, what God is doing to you, is because you are far more precious than gold. Because gold will one day perish, but you won't. You're being kept for God. You're being sustained for God for all eternity. And so what God is doing in your life through the sufferings is he is burning away all the impurities. He is burning all the things that are hindering you that are entangling you. 
God is saying, I'm doing this because I think of you as more precious than gold or silver. How precious are you? How precious are you? And some of the younger ones saying, my mom says I'm very precious. Well, how precious are you in God's eyes? How much are you worth? One bar of gold? Two bar of gold? Well, we live in a digital, you know, 10 bitcoins. What are you, how valuable are you? And obviously there is no standard, there's no measurement of things on earth to show us how valuable you are. You know how valuable you are? You are as valuable as the blood of Christ is. For that's what was shed to purchase you, to buy you. And because you are so valuable, you are redeemed in Christ, God, his purpose in sending sufferings is so that you get conformed, so that you are conformed into that image of Jesus. He is preparing you for what you're going to receive. Think of it this way. You know, when a soldier is promised um, to receive a high honor, such as the, the Medal of Honor, he prepares himself for that honor of receiving the medal. What does he do? He puts on his uniform that is wrinkle-free, stainless, crisp. He prepares himself to receive. When a king or a queen is going to be crowned and sit on the throne, they are, prepare themselves. They learn the customs and traditions of royalty, the palace etiquette, to get ready for the coronation service. They're being prepared. So too, when a believer is going to receive praise and glory and honor on the day Jesus Christ returns, they need to be made ready. How are they being prepared? God says it's through suffering. Now, suffering is painful. It is ever so painful. The Bible never denies it. But we can endure it because we know God's purpose. God is burning off. He's peeling off everything unnecessary so one day we will stand ready, radiating in the beauty of Christ's glory to receive what God wants to give to us. You know, the great artist and sculptor Michelangelo was once asked what he saw when he looked at a big block of marble. Because when I look at a big block of marble, all I see is a big block of marble. But Michelangelo answered very astutely. He said, when I look at a big piece of marble, I see a beautiful figure trapped inside of it. And my job with the mallet and the chisel is not to form this marble into something it's not. My job with mallet and chisel is to chip away at the marble until the figure inside is set free. In the same way, God uses afflictions and suffering in our lives as a hammer and chisel. And he's chipping away at those things in our lives that prevent us from radiating with the image of Christ. That's why we're undergoing a refiner's fire. And so through the hammering, through the chiseling, through the cutting, God is forming, he's fashioning you so that one day you will stand handsomely, beautifully, gloriously in front of his son, ready to receive praise, honor, and glory. And when we know what he's doing, I'm not saying knowing this makes the pain any less. I'm not so naive as to even suggest that. But I am suggesting that it does help us bear it. It does help us make sense of it a little more. You know, we have to know that no trials are identical. They're all unique to you. 
God in His grace, He tailor makes the trials and the sufferings and the hardships. He custom fits it for you. Meaning whatever God has sent your way, it didn't escape God's notice. They didn't sneak in past the door quietly, tiptoeing him as God was taking a nap. No, whatever came your way, God ordained it to pass. He deemed it necessary to fulfill his purpose in you because he wants to prepare you for that day. This is the gospel hope we have. This is the hope that Christians have. This is why there is no such thing as hopeless suffering in the life of the believer. But you cannot assume that this hope was yours because you earned it or you deserve it. This hope doesn't belong to everybody. This hope is given and received only by those who believe in Jesus. You know, there are still many who are not in Christ, who don't believe the Lord Jesus Christ, who cannot possess this hope. Why? Because they do not possess Christ. For the unbeliever, all trials, all sufferings in this world are ultimately hopeless. You know why? Because every heartache, every hurt, every suffering is not for a little while for them. But it will continue to be their experience after this life and into eternity. And that was us. That was the fate for all humanity. That was our lot until Jesus Christ came. Until he took the cross, until he endured the punishment, until he ate hell for you. And by his death, Jesus not only eliminates suffering in the future, but he gives purpose for suffering now. You see, this is how gospel hope works. The future certainty of God's promise breaking into the present circumstances. So I don't know what everyone in this room is going through, although many have shared, and many of us bear each other's burdens. But know this, your hope is not a change in your circumstance or a change in your situation. And your hope should never just even be the end of your sufferings. Your hope is in the purpose and promise that God is using whatever you're going through to prepare you to receive something much greater. And so is gospel hope making a difference in your life today? Will knowing this change anything about how we're going to face this upcoming week? Or are we going to continue living as if it's not true? You know, will you keep this hope, something in the future, or will you let it invade into your every day? You see, friends, the purpose of suffering gives you strength and endurance and new breath for the struggles today, in this hour, in the trial that you're currently facing. And this leads to our third point, the joy in suffering. The Christian's call to joy in the midst of suffering, Paul rejoicing in the midst of suffering, does not come out of either naivety or ignorance or some kind of self-punishment masochism. No, not at all. How is it that a believer in the midst of trials can respond 
and as Peter writes here in an inexpressible kind of joy, a joy filled with glory. How is it possible that in the midst of suffering that what's not produced out of our hearts is anger or fear or bitterness or grumbling or complaint? How is it that we can have produced in our lives the type of joy that Peter is talking about? And the answer is this. When you look at your suffering, not through the lens of sight, but through the lens of faith, because you see, when you look at your circumstances, when you look at the things in your life and everything is falling apart and you're looking at it through the lens of sight, there can be no joy in your life. Why? Because what you're looking at has no basis for joy. There's no reason to be joyful in it. But when you look at the same circumstances through faith, you begin to see things differently. You see, Peter commends the audience, his readers, in a very interesting way. In verse 8, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And what he means is this, Peter himself saw the risen Jesus. And he's saying, yeah, I know you guys weren't there. And it's amazing to me that although you didn't see him with your eyes, you still have the faith to love him. And then he goes on to say, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. And what he's saying is, presently you don't see him with your eyes, but you see him with faith. And because of that, you have joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. How can you have joy in trials when you can't see any reason for joy? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? And that's the question all of us want answered. How can I have joy in trials when I don't see a reason? And this is where Peter in verse 9 helps us out. He says, you can have this kind of joy if you focus your heart, soul, mind, everything, your eyes on this promise that you will obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter is saying that you can have this joy not when you look at the current circumstances, but when you look at what is sure to come. You know, suffering kills our joys because it feels like our souls are being destroyed. If you've ever gone through suffering, you know what this feels like. You feel like you're dying. You feel like you can't weather this storm. But Gospel Hope says this. In the midst of trials, your soul is far from being destroyed. Your soul is actually being preserved, saved, and kept safe. You know, in the midst of suffering, you may think to yourself, there is no way that I can make it. This is too much pain and agony and difficulty. Amen. You cannot hope in yourself. But let me tell you this, it is certainly not too much pain and hurt and agony for God. That when you seem to not be able to make it through, the Lord has his grip on you. He will save you. You know, there's this beautiful promise in Isaiah 43. And God says, when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You see, to have joy in the midst of all you're undergoing, think much of the Savior and the glorious salvation He promises you. That's the only way you're going to get through today. That's the only way you're going to have joy. You see, we're not just talking about endurance and strength to get through it. We're talking about celebration in the midst of it. The only thing that will make a difference is when you think about the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Imagine this scenario with me. There are two men. 
They're both in the same position. One man, well, both men have the same job. This is their job. They are locked in a factory. They work 15 hours uh, a day, six days a week. And what is their job? They stand in a line where uh, a conveyor belt and pieces of paper, and blank pieces of paper come by. And their job is to just take a stamp and just to stamp it. That's all the 15 hours a day, six days a week. And to make matters worse, right next to them is a guy who, after they stamp it, he takes it and he just puts it in a shredder. The work is completely meaningless. Completely meaningless. They do this 15 hours a day, six days a week, no vacations, no breaks. However, here's the difference. One of the guys whose job is to stamp, he's told, after a year of this, you're going to get $30,000. This guy is told, at the end of this, for a whole year, you will get $30 million. Let me ask you, on Monday morning, which one of those men is going to come to work happy and rejoiceful and say good morning? And who's going to come in angry and annoyed and frustrated? In the midst of that, which one of those men is going to come in like Frodo and say, I can't do this anymore? And which one is going to be like Samwise Gamgee and say, I'm able to do this because I'm holding on to something? You see, being able to rejoice in suffering is not about how strong you are. It's not about how faithful you are. It's not about how good of a Christian you are. It comes by knowing how powerful and real your hope in Jesus Christ is. And knowing what is ahead of you, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So if you are in a season of suffering personally, or you're facing trials that just seem insurmountable, or you're in the company of those who are suffering, or if God has privileged you to walk with somebody who is in the eye of the storm, make this passage yours. Make 1 Peter 1, verses 6 to 9, yours. Read it. Reread it. Pray over it. Turn the phrases. Think of the person. Read this and pray this passage over them to God. Because gospel hope not only gives us endurance in our suffering, but joy in it. So I encourage you, saying, think about the nature of suffering often. You are not alone because it comes in various kinds. We are in a company of sufferers. It is but for a short while compared to the scope of eternity. And if God has allowed it to come, it must be necessary. Second, think often about the purpose of suffering. God is preparing me to receive something so great that the only way for me to get ready to receive this is if I go through this trial. And third, think often about why and how you can have joy in suffering. There is a promise, a future hope and salvation waiting for you, and you will receive it on the day. If you do this, and you do it over and over again, what you will remember is there is no such thing as hopeless suffering if you are a believer, because the gospel gives you every reason to be hopeful. So here again, the words of Samwise Gamgee. In the end, our suffering is only a passing thing, a shadow. 
Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clear. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you not only for your word, but we thank you for your sufferings. For we know that in your suffering, you are very familiar, very intimate with the struggles and the heartache and the difficulty that we face. But more than just having a God who sympathizes with us through your sufferings on the cross, you put an end to our suffering. You put a period at the end of that, and you promised to us that the sufferings we endured now, yes, they are for a little while, but they are doing something to us and in us. They are preparing us for the revelation of Jesus Christ where we will receive an inheritance, a salvation, and praise glory and honor. Father, I know that there are many in this congregation, in this body who are suffering. They are suffering in various ways, internally, externally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. Some are suffering because we live in a fallen world. Some of us are suffering because we've been hurt by others. Some of us are suffering as a consequence of our own disobedience and failures. But whoever we are and in whichever way we are suffering, we thank you for the hope of the gospel because it is ours to believe. See us through, O Lord. Hold us fast. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father Almighty, the fellowship and comfort of the Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen. Hear the dismissal from Proverbs chapter 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Go in peace, my friends.